G'day, everybody. This week on Sales Stories Raw and Real, we talked to Malcolm Stradwick. In 1992, I just finished university. I was 22 years old and thought I knew everything. I couldn't find a job. Eventually, I landed a role in sales and it took me about two days to realize that I knew nothing. Luckily for me, my managing director sent me to a sales training course run by Malcolm Stradwick. Malcolm was like no one I'd ever met at that stage. He seemed so worldly, and the three days I spent with him changed the course of my life. It helped me build a range of businesses and teams and have a great deal of fun along the way. Malcolm shares his stories with us when he first got bitten by the sales bug in the early 60s, selling televisions in Perth. He went on to become a highly successful sales manager, state and general managers of a couple of large organisations before starting his own sales training course, which led to our meeting in 1992. These days, Malcolm's 80-plus years of age. It took me a while to get him because he's trying to teach himself the clarinet. He's a wonderful human being. He's been a great friend. I truly hope you enjoy listening to this podcast as much as I had sitting down and talking with him. Sales Stories, Raw and Real is a podcast series designed to help people in business development, whatever their level, by learning from the experiences of others. We'll be talking about the salespeople they've met, led and worked with and share their insights into what we need to do more of and less of. You'll hear the very best and worst of people's experiences to help you recognize the traps that we've all fallen into, get through them and out the other side, having learned what you needed to along the way. So today I'm interviewing Malcolm Stradwick. Malcolm has a lot to answer for and a lot to apologize for because he's probably responsible as much or more than anybody else for, for leading me into a, a later career change in sales training and coaching. I know you can't see it out there, people, but I've got a certificate in front of me from December 19, 1992, and it was an introduction to selling course that I did with the Australian Institute of Management and Malcolm Stradwick, and that was the first time that we met. We've stayed in touch all of these years. Malcolm's become not just a lifelong friend of mine, but a lifelong mentor. So thank you, Malcolm, and welcome. Cheers, Ed. What are you, Charlie? <laughs> so to start off with, Malcolm, can I ask how you got into sales? Well, not a lot of people leave school and say, I'm going to go into sales unless their father, or in these days perhaps mother, but in my time, their father had been in sales or they had a their own business. When I started off uh, at university studying the, for an education degree to become a teacher, following in the family's footsteps, and during the university vacation, I got a job selling secondhand fridges and washing machines. And this was over in Perth, and it was before television had come to WA. I just got such a kick when I made my first sale. My hands were shaking as I wrote the receipt out without a pure excitement. Uh, and uh, I never went back to uni. And uh, sales became my career. I started studying... I went to some sales training, sales courses, and started looking at the academic side, if you like, of selling a founder to learn 
a lot about it and it became a passion. And how old were you when you got that? I'll call it a sales bug. Do you, do you remember how old you oh, were? I would have been 18. 18 or 19, yeah. 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 And you can still, you can still remember it today. Oh, I remember that. But the other thing, and I'm not going to, I'm not saying being all truistic, but it was the Friday came and this guy came in with an envelope, which was a paid packet, and I had never seen, it was in cash in those days, you didn't, and they walked around with these envelopes. And um, the guy that gave me the job, it was Ron Shaw, and he said he'd give me 13 pounds a fortnight, sorry, a week, 13 pounds a week. And the bursary I was on to go to uni was 13 pounds a fortnight. And I opened up this pay packet and there was money everywhere. And I said to the store manager, this John Catlett, I said, look, Ron said he'd give me 13 pounds. There's about, you know, 20 pounds in here. And he said, that's your commissions. And I'd never heard of a commission. I remember some, some sculptor had been commissioned to do a bust of my grandfather, for, who was a headmaster. And uh, well, I've got to say the money was a, a great incentive to keep me in size on my... You know, very good money, and then when television hit Perth, uh, it hit WA, it was uh, we hit 50% saturation in the first two years. That means one in every two houses had a TV within two years of it coming out. So wow. it was just yeah. uh, the weekend Princess Margaret got married was a long weekend. The second station, the ABC, opened and she got married. And on the Friday, I sold 18 television sets, and on the Saturday, eight, Saturday morning, eight. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm going to be caught up, and I cleared, after tax, £110, and the adult wage then was about £22 a week. Right. And here I was, 20 years old. So, I mean, I've got to say making money. So five, five times. Five times, clear after tax. Yeah, so essentially I think the current annual wage is 75000 yeah. So five times that on a per annum basis. Yeah, five times that. You've made yourself, uh, what's that, three hundred, nearly $400,000. Yeah. It was over only over one week. Of I, course, I, of I course. Yeah. Year, but that's about the equivalent. Yeah. And it, it was just... Uh, and I loved it, but it wasn't just, I wouldn't have done it just for the money, but you had to like it. Yeah. And, but there's not one successful salesperson I know who doesn't like selling. Yeah, right, okay. You cannot do it. You, you, get, uh, you just become a cynic and, a, the, you know, not a nice person. Yeah, yeah. And, so uh, what, did you, what did you do with your first payback, if you remember? I, uh, yeah. <laughs> My old mum's not with us anymore, of course. But because otherwise I, I didn't tell anybody what I was getting because I was giving her five five pounds a week board, which was quite sufficient in those days. <laughs> but I bought Anthony's quite a suits and I had some good car and nice. Uh, I just uh, I lived a good life. So you you looked after yourself. You Absolutely. rewarded yourself, mate. And I think that's yeah. that's important yeah. to yeah. to uh, attach on to that yeah. love of sales. But it was also. I just like meeting new people. You ask me, you know, why? One thing is, why do you get into sales? The other thing, why do you stay in it? Yeah, yeah. And uh, and of course, later on, I then 
Change Island, if you like, and I've been with John Phillips and uh, was a product manager there, which wasn't selling. But I, I missed the selling side, so then I went across to General Electric as a sales rep. Okay. So now I'm seeing both sides of sales. One was selling the product to the end user. Yep. So business uh, to consumer sort of stuff. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then, then then I'm selling the product to the retailer to go to the consumer. So it, it helped Just knowing what the consumer was like uh, and what the retailer wanted for his business. Right. And I just decided then I became sales manager for New South Wales and then state manager, then changed companies to go national and I finished up general manager of a company. Um, but the, uh, what I used to say to the reps, and this is terribly important if you're a sales rep selling to a retailer, you sell through them, not to them. Yeah. It's no good selling something and seeing happy birthday to it every stock take. You want them to sell it out. So you're helping him, the retailer, to make sales. And yeah. hoping they're your product. And that's the way I've got to look at it. So how did, how did you sell through somebody then? Well, the way you talk to them, you never say, you turn it on this way, you know, if you're describing how to use it. You say, this is how you, you know, how your customer will do it, or this is how you show them to do it. You're selling through, not to. Yep. And a lot of sales reps don't pick that up. They try to sell the product to the retailers, though. He's going to use it or she's going to use it. Yeah. So it's a slightly different approach, but the... What, why do you think people make that mistake? No training. Right. Okay. And as they said, I mean, Charlie, I got this passion at 20, 20 years old of looking at the, the theoretical side of selling, what it's about. Yeah. And I actually... Where, where did that come from, do you know? Oh, probably the wanting to be a school teacher. Yeah, right. The similarity between teaching and uh, selling is minute. You are communicating to somebody. You're trying to get someone to change an attitude. Yeah. And that's what it's about. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, but the difference with retail, of course, is that the customer comes to you, so they already have a need or want. When they come in, they're looking for something. Yeah. So your selling ability is one, yeah, some that used to say sell something that won't come back to someone who will. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't want the product back, so it's got to be the right one for that customer. And you want them back in your place. But you've also, in a highly competitive industry like white goods and electronics, they can buy exactly the same product for the guy over the road for 10% you know, less. So you've got to sell, you know, why you and why your store. So there's a, a lot to it. But when I was about 20, 21, I thought of why, what influences people's decision-making? And this is probably where I started on the concept of selling. And I went back to the university and looked in the site books and there was nothing there. So I wrote the article, wrote just for myself, the factors that influence decision-making. Now, this is not whether they should buy or not because they're making a myriad decisions when they come in. The first thing they do is look at you and say, do I like the look of this person? And if your appearance is, 
you know, not to their liking, you're not going to get past first base. And so this is where it started. And then when I came to Sydney, would have been 1969. I'd already now done my diploma in management. Doug Nettleship, who was my mentor, I went to one of his sales training. He was at Phillips. And I went to his sales training course in Perth. He rang me up and he said uh, he was now on the board of the Institute of Management. And he said, uh, you know, you've done your diploma and a bit of teaching. How would you like to run a sales training course? That we're starting here. And that was 1969. So by the time you came in 1992, I'd already been doing it for you know, 13 years. So I was, I was still you know, very young. I was actually younger than a lot of the people in the course. <laughs> But then I went from there and started writing my own sales training courses. So by the time you came to the Institute of Management, that was the one I'd written. Mm. And without wanting to upset anybody, I got rid of all the Americanisms. <laughs> and uh, and it was probably the first, well, probably it was the first sales training course written by an Australian for Australians. Yeah, right, okay. As opposed to the American. Yeah. The fast sell approach was. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I st it's interesting. Um, I still remember the difference between open and closed questions. That exercise that yeah. you did with the sales mastery group just a few, well, a year or two ago now, but um, because that was the first, that was that was on a Saturday, I think, and the first or the first time that I looked at it, I just couldn't believe I'd been through primary school, secondary school. And university, and I hadn't seen anything like that, and I felt I felt ripped off by the education system, and um, and the difference between just basic communication in terms of how you get somebody to speak using different types of questions was was quite profound for yeah. me. It uh, also, oh, definitely in school, whether teachers do it now, but the other one too I hear is, is journalists. Mm. They'll start with an open question, then finish up close. They're in, I heard it like yesterday. I say, what's happening here? Is it this? So mm. the person they're interviewing answers the second part and it doesn't elaborate. Yeah, sure. And uh, it's it really is something that should be taught at school. I'm very passionate about that. Yeah. And, um, and the easiest way if somebody starts too many close questions, just give them yes, no answers and see how far they go. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So you moved into to sales training then. What do you think a, a career in selling and or sales training has given you? Enormous satisfaction. More the sales training. And bear in mind, I did it part-time from 1969 Institute. That was at night then in the mm -hmm. early days. And I think by the time you came, it was a daytime course. Mm -hmm. But originally it was two nights a week from... The Tuesdays and Thursdays from six to nine for two weeks or something like that, and um, then finished up three days. But and then I started my own company in '85. That was not not just sales training. Now I was doing time management, sales management, decision making, all sorts of things that I'd written them all myself as mm. programs. And the answer you to answer your question, the reward, the biggest reward of people like you. Yeah. That come back after all these years and somebody ring me last year 
hadn't seen for years and something came up and he said, can I use your name for this? And that's where I get the jollies. And, yeah. uh, and seeing the people that are successful, the guy rings up and he said, look, I've just been made manager of this and I couldn't have done it just like you opened. And that's where I get my jollies. Yeah, it's very satisfying. Yeah, yeah, huge. A real legacy. So what, what, how do you think selling has changed over the years? Man? Well, there's... In a way, I think it's probably tougher now because I can't I can't comment about how I'd be able to train now with the use of websites. And mm. I mean, one of the things that we would do two hours of the three day course on was how to make the cold phone call, and because you had to make the cold phone call to get the appointment. And nowadays your website's encouraging the guy to make contact with you, or the question say the guy, the prospect. And Charlie, I'd, I'd be remiss to try to say how it would be conducted now. Mm. I, I don't know because it, I went through all the changes yeah. of uh, of the start of, of telephone selling. Yeah. That was non-existent when I started. You never sold anything on the phone. And then in the end, I wrote a program that went actually worldwide early on, and then it is what can be sold on the phone and what can't be sold on the phone. Mm-hmm. Mm. Now, you could probably adapt that to internet. Yep. There's certain things you could sell on the internet. One of the most important things, of course, is prior knowledge of it. If you're likely to buy a ticket to Melbourne on an aeroplane because you've got prior knowledge, but you'd be scratching to buy a dog. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah sure. and, or, Some people buy clothes. I, I, yeah, I, I'm still a little bit. No, I'd rather see it. Yeah, but but if I've already bought that and now I'm just buying another one of a different colour, prime knowledge, I'd buy it. Doesn't make any difference, yeah. So it's uh, it's changed dramatically since internet. Mm. Mm. What do you think makes a good salesperson? Well, how long have we got? <laughs> Because actually, if you remember, in the workshop um, I ran, we actually spent, everybody put down their thoughts of Mm. what makes a good salesman or person, I should say. But the key ones to me that, because I interviewed a lot of people for sales jobs, and one was a pleasant personality. Nobody wants to do business with a sad sack. And if you're a grump, doesn't matter what product knowledge you've got, doesn't matter anything else, you won't sell. Mm. That's one of the key to me. I'd, I'd rather get somebody with this pleasant personality and teach them how to sell and product knowledge than try to change a grump. Yeah. And the other one that's probably the other key is the ability to handle rejection. I've met people at social functions and I thought, he or she, I was looking, I thought, you'd make a really good sales rep. And I've suggested it. No, no, no. And when I go further, it's that fear of rejection. It's innate, it's in us. Yeah. That's probably what stops a lot of people continuing in a sales role. Yeah. And they may go and get another job, which is similar wrapping, where they never actually have to ask for an order. Mm. And that, they go around calling on people and 
it's a service role rather than a sales role. How should people get over that within themselves, do you think? Well, it's in your head. That's right. <laughs> and I used to look and say, and this was in my early days, if I can get three sales out of ten people that I see, I'm going to be very successful. Yeah. So that means 70% rejection rate. Yeah. And if you try to bat 100, you never will. Yeah. Um, and I know I'm not being negative or defeatist, but that's the way it is. Mm. And it's just that attitude of, um, yeah. but this takes, you look at entertainers, mm. actors, usually they've got a heck of a time to start. Yeah. Right. I was reading about Gene Hackman the other day, but yeah. he was voted in his, um, when he went to a drama school, he was voted the least likely to succeed. <laughs> and he got the worst marks ever in the drama course he did. Yeah, right. So they get a lot of knockbacks here. Yeah, look at those. They've got to have the, uh, the Tony Bennett's, what he went through. Yeah. To get his first record. Yeah. And there's a lot of people out there with good voices, but they don't get anywhere because mm. they've got to have that same thing, the ability to handle rejection and keep going. Mm. What's a Tolkien, the C.K. Rowland, how many times her first book was knocked back? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's but she right. kept going and going. Well, I was reading the other day about um, Tom Brady, the, the quarterback for the the NFL quarterback. He was the two, 195th pick in the in the first year of his draft, and he was the sixth quarterback picked out of those drafts. But they couldn't measure his desire yeah. to get over himself, motivate himself to just keep on going, you know. And uh, fascinating, really, um, and all those stories that you say. Yeah. It's just the, the ability to deal with rejection or handling failure and using it to motivate yourself, not demotivate yourself. Yeah, it's... Um and when, when, it's not just about agreeing with you about the motivation, Charlie, but it's also sitting down and saying, what could I have done better? Yeah, so some reflection. Yeah, and uh, the ability to be objective about yourself and what you've done, to say, geez, if I'd gone that way, I'd asked that instead of this. Yeah. I mean, I'll never forget, for instance, that, I mean, it's, I was selling refrigerators that didn't have door shelves. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's how old I am. That's, yeah, yeah. that's how far things have come to. Yeah, yeah. And there's the first fridge that's got a door shelf that would take a large bottle of beer because there's no stubbies around little things in those days. And I remember opening the door and saying, there's a husband and wife, and have a look at this, sir, it takes a large bottle of beer on the door shelf, and he just said, we don't have any alcohol in our house. Bang, I'm gone. No, I lost it. <laughs> that wasn't hard to analyse where I went wrong, you know. Yeah, yeah. You should have said sort of what large bottles do you have, you know. So I thought, well, that's not going to happen again. Another ask questions before you. Yeah, right. I, I didn't know who this was, but what you've just, I've had a flashback. Because I thought it was one of my early managers and I suspect it may have been you because I was told after every sales call to write down three things. What I did well, what didn't I do well and what I should do next time. And I do that almost every time I make either a phone call or do a sales face-to-face call because it's that reflection. It's to lock in the, the good things that I've done 
It's to accept where I could have done better and it's commitment to try and make myself better next time. Yeah, well, the sales management course I wrote had a whole section on what I call the coaching call. Yeah. And I don't know of another workshop then, there might be one now, that teaches or shows a sales manager how to coach yeah. as opposed to train. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the toughest things a sales manager has to do is go out with a sales rep and let the rep do the whole thing. And if that means making a mistake and losing the sale, you let it happen so you can analyse it afterwards. Mm -hmm. And they were the three questions that what did you, you know, how do you reckon that went? Yeah. What did you, what did you think you did well? Uh, what would you change? So if they know what they did wrong and what they want to change, then you don't have to tell them because that's the mistake. Is, you know, yeah. They, they're aware of it, so they don't rub it in. But uh, no, I did that because even right now when I started my sales training company, or training company because we did sales as only about maybe a third of the all the courses, and I had to start making cold calls to get it, like you did when you started your business. Yeah, that's right. Your phone's not going to ring and somebody says, oh, I believe you, you've, got to, you've got to generate it. And I did all that, just what you did at the end, and uh, learned little things. I'll never forget a guy. He's never forgotten it. Interviewed him to get what he was looking for for this training for his company. And I was going to send the uh, proposal, and I wasted the proposal. I did that with very costly. I, when I did a proposal, it was good colour and you know, well done. Mm -hmm. And I never would send it by fax in those days because I don't know how it's going to turn out. If it was hand-delivered, it was you know, in a nice folder. And I did one of my whole thing. I said to him, and who of us would like a copy because I don't want you to copy this with the photocopier. And as soon as he told me, he looked at me and said, yeah, it was a smart way to get my boss's name, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. So... It's those things, so that you've always got the contact above as well. And yeah. There's a lot of strategy yeah. in, in building it without being devious. No, you, no, you've got to yeah. plan your strategy. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And uh, uh, there's quite a few times, there's one I got a very big contract with Qantas. Mm -hmm. In fact, I went around the world yeah, right. training it. And I lost the first contract in order to get the big one. Yeah, right. Purposefully. Purposely. Yeah, right. Because I knew they were down to two people. The contact told me this. He was from BOAC, actually, sent out to pick a training company. And um, I knew the competitor. And I knew his style would not go down well with Qantas. Too high pressure. Yeah, right. Very high pressure. Mm. And they tried to negotiate a bit more on price. And it's an awkward thing when you own the company and they know it's you and you're selling it and it's time, it's not a product. Mm. They sort of think they can get you for, you know, negotiate to doubt. Yeah. And I decided just to leave it. And, of course, he flunked. Mm. They came back to me and I got the domestic and then worldwide. Yeah, right, okay. So that was the strategy. I yeah. didn't want to cheapen what I had. Yeah. Just on that, if you are selling yourself, to me it's one of the most important things is not negotiate down. Yeah, right. 
Yeah. I, I'd offer to come back and I'd say, look, I'll do a, a um, review for no charge, but, I mean, that is the fee. Yeah. And I'll never forget one guy was on the phone and um, he, he turned around and said, well, why should I pay you $1,500 to do this when I can get it for 500 And I said, I can get you someone who will do it for nothing for the experience. It's up to you. Mm. And that sort of put an edge to that. Yeah. I mean, so anyway. What, what, what is it that you think about that? Because um, there's a couple of, well, one of my ideas is that as, a hum, as humans, we don't like paying more than we have to. We don't like getting ripped off. But there's, there's no truer saying than you get what you pay for. So both of those things rub up against each other, kind of. How do you see that when you're, when you're, how do you see that as a salesperson when you know that, that, um, because part of it is a game. Well, it's, yes and no, I can agree with, about, I'm not sure about the game, mm. but I always come back and say that people buy, well, people do business with people they like. Yeah. And, I noticed that there would be an exception, but the majority of people wouldn't do business and give somebody money that they really just, I know, it was rude and nasty to them. No, mm. don't they go somewhere else. But there's a level. I don't think there's, I'm sticking my neck out here, Charlie, but I don't think there'd be a product if you went into Woolworths or Coles or, you know, any of these stores that were the cheapest sells the most. Mm. But everybody will pay a little bit more for something. Yep. And I can remember a long time ago, very common product, let's say like a brick. Mm-hmm. And I was giving that part of the thing about sell value, not the product. The, what you said earlier, people get what you pay for. And I had this formula I'd put it up and say, if somebody can see getting... 12 benefits out of your product and you're four bucks, they've got a value of three. Yeah. If they see the same benefits, 12 buying from your opposition and they're $3, they're not buying because there's a dollar less, they're buying because the value's four. Yeah. Now you've got a choice, you can drop your price or add your benefits. Yep. And you do that by what your company's offering, not just the product and so on. And I went through this, and this person <laughs> was a lady, actually, and she said, well, how can you do that? A brick is a brick is a brick. And I said, yes, well, at the same moment, people would be in um, Fleming's, I think, or Franklin's was around then, paying $1.50 for a bottle of tomato sauce. And then just down the road, they'd be paying $1.75 for the same tomato sauce at Woolworths. And they could probably be in David Jones' Food Glorious Food Hall paying $2. Bottle of tomato sauce is a bottle of tomato sauce. They're paying for the other conveniences and other things. And any company, getting away from just the salespeople, but any company who tries to be all things to all people will go broke. Yeah. If David Jones tried to sell at the same price as, as you know, Franklin's, yeah. they couldn't do it. If Franklin's right. tried to put the same price on as David Jones, they couldn't do it. Yeah. There'll always be a Virgin Airways and there'll always be a Qantas. Mm. So it's about target marketing and knowing. It's about target marketing yeah. and knowing it. Yeah. And, I mean, before COVID, 
you'd cop into a Qantas plane to go to Melbourne and business class would be full. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they're still going to Melbourne and driving at the same time. Yeah. But it, it, you've got to you know, put yourself in the market and sell what you've got. Yeah. And don't negotiate. I hate negotiating down. Always did. Mm-hmm. What, um, what have you learned about selling over the years? Well, I'll come back to what I've been saying. People like do business with people they like. Yeah. Uh, that, that to me is just sort of number one. Yeah. The other thing I learned very early in the piece, which stuck with me when, back when I was you know, 19, 20 years old, if somebody left the shop, and bear in mind I'm selling the same product that was opposition down the road and everywhere, if somebody left and then came back in and said, I can buy it cheaper down the road, then I've got the upper hand. Otherwise, they would have bought it from the guy down the road and never come back. They've come back because they want to do business with the house store. Yep. And I never had to match the other guy's price. Mm. Now, I learned that at 20, yeah. 60, 60. 60 yeah. years ago, yeah, and I've never forgotten it. If somebody ever rings back and says, look, I can do this cheap, I say, yeah, sure, but let's work something out. They've come back because they want to do business that's with you. The, yeah, that's the trigger, isn't it? Yeah. And um, it's not something to be boastful of or no. get arrogant about. No, Just be no. very aware if they've come back. It's your opportunity. And I also just sort of a bit of self-satisfaction. I thought, if they don't come back, well, I, did I want them? <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> you know? right, yeah. Because you want business that they continue. It's much cheaper to keep your existing customers than go and find a new one. That's right, yeah. I'd do anything for an existing customer. Yeah. What have I also learned about selling? I'm not sure which I prefer, selling or sales training. Yeah, right. I loved all aspects of training, I've got to say. The um, another thing I found about both of them is the concentration. There's a lot of jobs you can do and sort of be half concentrated, but when you're with a customer, yeah. you've got to be 100% sharp. concentrating and sharp. Yeah. And I found that with, with training people. As you know, with mine, I didn't lecture, yep. didn't use overheads. It was very participatory and put his out to have a shot at you. Mm. And so it's just 100% concentration. That's what I really liked about it. Yeah. Keeping the brain sharp. Yeah. I think um, it's it's definitely important to, to you know, involve your, your students. And I, I just wonder, as you, were, as you were talking about that, I drifted a little bit uh, with respect to the fact that you... You went against your the family grain in terms of not being a teacher, but in fact you're a very successful teacher, uh, teacher in your own right. So you probably didn't stray too far. You just made a big difference to your bank account and a lot of other people's lives as well, <laughs> which I love because I'm one of those people. Yeah. And that's very rewarding to be here, Charlie, and yeah. see how successful you've been. <laughs> and to me, um, it was a little bit difficult to... Uh, to get a hold of you because you're pretty busy, even into your 80s. What have, what have you learned about learning? Well, when they say never stop learning, I can't agree with that more. I mean, 15 months ago, I went and bought a clarinet and started to learn to, learn to read music. 
81. And I tried to find a music teacher in my area. And they all said eight to eighteen, and I said, "Well, I got the eight and the one there, but they're back to front." <laughs> <laughs> and nobody wanted to know me. I did find one now, lovely, lovely teacher, Abbott. And um, the concentration there of just learning the rhythm and the beats, and the, I'm learning classical as well as jazz. Yeah, and um, it coordinating the fingering with the oh, it's just. Never stop learning. Yeah. And um, by the old brain's going, yeah, life's the, great. The, the body will follow. It might oh. be a bit reluctant from time to time. But. Oh, yeah. You get a few <laughs> joint joints of the creek and crack and things. But, uh, yeah. Those that haven't been replaced. But uh, I, I love that you said that because, you know, I was 20 when I was painting my grandfather's house and um, he was 85. And I wanted to borrow a Time magazine off him and he wouldn't give it to me. He was the most generous man in the world, but he wouldn't give me his Time magazine. I said, my 20-year-old brain said, why not? And he said, well, I haven't yet read it and I might learn something. (laughs) And so I'm asking myself at 20, what have you got to learn at 85? At at, at 50, I'm thankful for the lesson he gave me in lifelong learning that day. And I, I just really like to close with that, Malcolm, because... If you're still going at 80, 81, 82, trying to learn the clarinet, I think that's an inspiration for all of us. So thanks for today, mate. Oh, thank thanks you. For, thanks for everything from December and, 92. Yeah, and don't forget one thing, Charlie. I drummed into you in that very first course to be proud to be a salesman rather than that people to say, oh, I'm just a salesman or something like that. I said, you be proud of it. Mm-hmm. And I think you're up in Coffs Harbour or somewhere and a bit of a brawl going on. <laughs> And even though you're a qualified accountant, the cop said, and what are you doing? He said, I'm a salesman. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we won't finish that story, but uh, <laughs> for fear of incriminating myself. But no, you're right. I uh, I do remember telling you that story and I, I love it. And, uh, and thank you, mate. Thank, thank you. Much. Cheers, mate. Thanks, everybody, for listening. I really hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, be sure to subscribe in your podcaster so you don't miss a future episode. And whilst you're there, I'd really appreciate if you could take the time to rate and review the podcast. Thank you very much. Talk to you soon. Charlie.